Hi, it's Chris Flanagan and welcome back to the Paediatric Emergencies podcast. So before I get started with this episode, there's a couple of things I want to mention. The first thing really is that I hope you've been enjoying the podcast um, thus far. And if you have, uh, what I would like you to do is just to take five minutes and leave me a review on iTunes. Um, This is important for a number of reasons. Firstly, it helps others find the podcast. And secondly, it lets me know what you think of the podcast. There's a reasonable amount of work goes into these episodes, so it'd be great to get a little bit of feedback on them. And the second thing I want to let you know about is a new website I'm getting involved in. It's kidsresus.com. So I'm working on this website with Aaron Ghosh, who is a paediatric intensive care registrar from Birmingham, and David Sinton, who's a peds ED registrar from Leicester. So the idea of this new website is that we're going to get users to contribute to it and we're going to be mainly involved in editing the content. So we're looking for case reports, reviews of journal articles, if you've got an interesting video um, that you can contribute it to the website and we'll upload it. So it's a great way to get um, a publication. So the Paediatric Emergencies website um, will continue just the way it has been with me supplying the content and this new website, kidsresource.com, we're looking for you guys to supply some of the content. So have a look at it. Okay, I'm going to get on to this episode, which is the claps knee in it. So if you're somebody who spends most of your time looking after adults, but would be expected to provide emergency care to a knee in it, um, there's often a lot of anxiety around this, because this is very different to what you do most days. So the aim of this podcast is to try and give you a structured approach to the collapse neonate and hopefully take away some of that anxiety. So like most of these podcasts, I'm going to start off with a case. Okay, so we've got a three-week-old baby who is brought to the emergency department by his parents with a 24-hour history of poor feeding. Um, This has increased over the last 24 hours and his parents have noticed that he's become more lethargic and his colour isn't quite as good. There hasn't been any temperatures and systemic review is otherwise unremarkable. Looking at the baby's past medical history, he was born at term after an uneventful pregnancy with normal antenatal scans. There was no risk factors for sepsis. The baby didn't have any problems at delivery and didn't need any special care. He went home routinely after 48 hours and had a normal neonatal discharge examination. He's not on any regular medications and doesn't have any allergies. There's no significant family history of note. He's the first baby of both parents. There hasn't been any sick contacts, recent foreign travel, or there's no social concerns. So the parents bring the baby into triage. The nurse takes one look at him and he's grey and cyanosed, so rushes him through to recess where you're asked to get involved. So like any um, sick child, um, an ABCD approach is what should be taken. So looking at the airway, his airway is patent. You move on to the breathing. Um, His peripheral oxygen saturations are 62% an hour. He's a little tachypneic with a respiratory rate of 80 breaths per minute, but has only mild indrawing with this. On auscultation of the chest, there's good air entry bilaterally, with no additional signs. 
uh, blood gas is performed and the results are quite alarming. So he's got a pH of 6.9, CO2 of 7.6, O2 of 3.2, bicarb of 14.2, base excess of minus 15 and a lactate of 11. Moving on to the circulation, he's grey blue in colour with cool peripheries and a central capillary refill time of 5 seconds. On the monitor he's tachycardic with a heart rate of 195 beats per minute. It looks to be sinus tachycardia on the monitor. And you try and record a non-invasive blood pressure um, but it's not able to give you a reading. It won't pick up. Heart sounds appear normal with no murmurs. You can't feel his um, radial pulses but there is weak femoral and brachial pulses and you feel they're probably equal in volume. Um, moving on to disability, he's only responsive to pain, however pupils are equal and reactive to light. His anterior fontanelle is soft and he has a blood sugar of 9.2. Um, from an uh, exposure point of view, um, temperature is 35.2 degrees C. Um, there's no rashes, his abdomen is soft and there's a mild hepatomegaly. Um, with 3 centimetres of liver palpable below the costal margin. So obviously quite a frightening situation to be in if you have limited experience of dealing with neonates. So what I want to do is provide you with a structured approach of how you should manage a baby presenting just like this. But before I do, I want to go through a little bit of the background about why babies present like this. What are the major causes? Okay, so whenever you have a collapsed neonate, there's four major causes that you must uh, consider. So they are sepsis, congenital heart disease, a metabolic problem, and non-accidental injury. So I'm going to go through each of these four conditions in a little bit of detail now. I'm going to start with sepsis. So it's important that you explore the history um, for risk factors of sepsis. Um, and major risk factors for sepsis in a newborn baby are maternal colonisation with group B strep um, or if there's been a previous sibling affected with group B strep sepsis there are major risk factors for um, sepsis in this baby if there's been prolonged rupture of membranes for more than 24 hours or evidence of maternal chorioamniitis for example maternal pyrexia, foul smelling like or uterine tenderness are raised inflammatory markers in the mother. And unlike adults, um, neonates with sepsis tend to present very non-specifically. Um, so common features in a septic neonate are things like lethargy, vomiting, poor feeding, um, temperature instability. So rather than having high temperatures, quite often these newborn babies present with low temperatures, um, as in our case. Um, the babies may have apneas, or uh, present with features of shock, for example, skin mottling, tachycardia, prolonged cap refill time, elevated lactate, or reduced level of consciousness. What's also really important to say is that a lot of neonates with sepsis won't put their inflammatory markers up, so they'll have overt sepsis with a normal CRP in white cells. So the absence of an inflammatory marker rise, or the lack of risk factors for sepsis, does not exclude it. And you shouldn't be using these factors to help you decide whether a collapsed neonate should be treated with antibiotics 
all neonates presenting in a collapsed state or any neonate where you think may have sepsis should be treated with antibiotics while you're waiting for culture results coming back. So we generally give cefotaxime and amoxicillin um, both in doses of 50 milligrams per kilogram intravenously because they provide coverage against all the major organisms that could be causing um, sepsis in a newborn baby. And they are group B strep, E. coli and listeria. And the amoxicillin is primarily there to cover the listeria. The cefotaxime will cover the group B strep and E. coli well. It's also important that um, disseminated herpes simplex infection will present very similar um, to bacterial sepsis in a neonate. Uh, and certainly for any um, neonate preventing in a collapsed state, you should cover them for this um, by adding intravenous acyclovir at a dose of 20 milligrams per kilogram um, to the above antibiotics. Obviously, if the baby has been in hospital, you'll need to change your antibiotics to cover bugs that are about in the hospital to cover hospital-acquired sepsis. And appropriate antibiotics uh, in this scenario would be meripenem in a dose of 40 milligrams per kilogram um, with the addition of vancomycin, 50 milligrams per kilogram if there's no MRSA colonization or indwelling plastic, for example, a central venous line. Okay, I'm going to move on to congenital heart disease. So risk factors for this, it would be important to inquire in the history um, if the antenatal scans were normal right throughout the pregnancy. Was there any concerns? They didn't get good views at any stage. Um, on the neonatal discharge examination, was there any abnormalities picked up that were awaiting follow-up? For example, a murmur that was heard that was felt to be innocent and awaiting routine review in a neonatal clinic. Um, is there any family history of congenital heart disease? So when we look at um, congenital heart disease as a cause of neonatal collapse, what we're mainly looking at is duct-dependent congenital heart disease. Um, so the ductus arteriosus is a blood vessel that connects the pulmonary artery to the descending aorta. Um, so in utero, it basically allows um, blood to bypass the fluid-filled fetal lungs. And it would normally close in the first few days after birth. But while it remains open, um, neonates with very serious heart problems can appear normal. As the duct um, provides a source of either systemic blood, pulmonary blood, or mixing. So, for example, in uh, left heart obstructive lesions, such as hypoplastic left heart syndrome, coarctation of the aorta, an interrupted aortic arch or critical aortic stenosis, um, that connection between the pulmonary artery and the descending aorta um, allows blood to bypass that obstruction. So blood comes from the pulmonaries through the ductus arteriosa um, to the descending aorta, providing some systemic blood flow. However, when that closes, you get sudden loss of systemic blood flow and then the patient collapses. Likewise, in obstructive right heart lesions, such as tetralogy of fallow, um, critical pulmonary stenosis, tricuspid atresia, or pulmonary atresia, um, the duct acts as a source of pulmonary blood flow, coming from the aorta through to the pulmonary artery. And in uh, transposition of the great arteries, where you've got um, two circuits in parallel, um, the duct acts as a source of mixing 
uh, between oxygenated and deoxygenated blood. So like I've said, um, the neonate with very significant congenital heart disease can appear initially normal um, as the duct provides a source of blood bypassing that uh, anatomical problem. And it's only when the duct starts to close that the baby first shows signs of becoming unwell. Um, and the obstructive left heart lesions tend to present with a combination of signs of shock and congestive heart failure um, when the duct starts to close. Whereas the right heart lesions um, and the transposition of the great arteries tend to present with increasing cyanosis when the duct starts to close, as you've lost that source of mixing or um, pulmonary blood flow. Um, so when should you suspect um, congenital heart disease? Well, there's a number of features in the baby that may make you suspicious of it. Um, for example, hypoxia that's refractory to the administration of oxygen. Um, or hypoxia without significant respiratory distress or lung pathology and chest x-ray. That makes you suspicious that it's not a lung problem that's causing the hypoxia and it's actually a mixing or shunt problem. If the baby has a pathological murmur, absent femoral pulses, cardiomegaly or pulmonary edema on chest x-ray or hepatomegaly, um, be some of the features that would make you suspicious of congenital heart disease. Another important feature is a lactic acidosis that fails to respond to intubation and cardiovascular support in a baby who presents in a collapsed state. It should make you strongly suspect congenital heart disease. So what do you do about it when you've got a baby you think has um, duct-dependent congenital heart disease? Um, well, your main aim should be to try and reopen that duct and turn the baby back to that period where it was quite stable with the duct open. Um, and the main way of doing that is intravenous prostaglandin infusion, which I'll come on to a little bit more um, later in this talk. Um, if you have the local skills and expertise, an echocardiogram to confirm the diagnosis. Um, but either way, you should be discussing this um, with the retrieval team and having a conference call with a paediatric cardiologist to help guide management. And it's very important that you do get a paediatric cardiologist involved as there are certain conditions that may require urgent transfer to a cardiac centre rather than spending lots of time um, at the District General Hospital trying to stabilise the baby. Um, for example, um, transposition of the great arteries which needs uh, blue atrial septostomy or obstructive total anomalous pulmonary venous drainage um, which will be refractory to um, conservative management and actually starting prostaglandin can make things worse um, and urgent surgical repair is the treatment of choice. So I'm going to go on now and look at uh, the metabolic problems um, and what would point you towards this in the history. Um, I suppose if there was a history of metabolic problems obviously or um, maybe metabolic problems that haven't been diagnosed for example if there had been sudden infant deaths um, that could be related to metabolic problems. Also, um, metabolic um, problems are more common in babies of consanguineous parents, so this is something that should be checked for as part of the metabolic history. Um, features that may make you suspicious of it is if you're having lots of multi-system disorders, um, so babies tend to present with um, lethargy, vomiting, abnormal tone, seizures, hepatomegaly, um, features of cardiovascular shock, um, metabolic acidosis, or hypoglycemia. So when you do a metabolic 
screen. Um, there's a number of blood and urine tests um, that will take several days to come back but require quite a detailed analysis. However, there's one test that you should send urgently and that's an ammonia. Um, most laboratories should be able to turn that test around within an hour and give you a result. And the reason for doing that urgently is that ammonia is toxic to the brain and the toxicity that it causes is related to its level and also the duration of exposure. So if it is fine to be elevated, bringing it down is time critical and that would require urgent discussion with the metabolic team, um, obviously via a conference call with the retrieval team. Um, I'm going to come on to the treatment of um, hyperammonemia um, later in this talk. So moving on to non-accidental injury. Um, anybody who is dealing with children should have training in safeguarding. Um, so they're able to recognise the features. For example, if obvious, it's obvious if there's injuries in a, a neonate, they can't injure themselves due to their development. If the history is inconsistent with the presentation or the history changes, or if there's a delay in presentation. But it's something that you should suspect in every child attending the emergency department. Um, so why do these babies present in a collapsed state? Well, it's important the neonate's blood volume is only about 80 mils per kilo. So that's around about 320 mils in an average four kilo baby. So these babies can present shocks from an intracranial bleed. Um, and also, obviously, the, the fact of an intracranial breed um, from a baby who's been shaken will depress their consciousness, cause airway obstruction, and cause the baby to present in a collapsed state for that reason itself. So after the initial resuscitation, you should consider urgent neuroimaging in any baby presenting with um, unexplained reduced level of consciousness, seizures, or a bulging fontanelle. It's important to note that um, hemorrhagic disease of the newborn can also cause spontaneous bleeding, including intracranial bleeding. So you should check the history to see if vitamin K had been administered routinely in the postnatal period. So these are the four big conditions that um, must be considered in any neonate presenting in a collapsed state. Um, I just want to cover a bit more of the sort of wider differential diagnosis and things to consider. Um, and these are fairly common to um, anybody presenting in a collapsed state. Um, so, for example, you must exclude attention pneumothorax, um, pericardial effusion. Um, myocarditis quite often causes babies to present collapsed, or if there's an arrhythmia. Um, I've seen this um, in babies presenting with SVT that has been undiagnosed and then presents with um, congestive heart failure. Um, a surgical abdomen, um, for example, intussusception or a volvulus, is another cause of the collapse neonate. And in this situation, your, your lactic acidosis also won't respond to resuscitation if it's due to um, ischemic gut. Um, has there been toxin ingestion? Um, anaphylaxis. Um, adrenal insufficiency is also something to consider in the setting of congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Um, and these babies tend to present with salt-losing crises, so they'll present with um, shock together with hyponatremia, hyperkalemia, and hypoglycemia. Um, and it's also important to consider hypothyroidism. 
Um, the other common cause I've seen in collapsed babies at the moment is bronchiolitis. Um, and these babies are tending to present collapsed due to the secondary effects of the hypoxemia, the apneas or the airway obstruction. Um, and certainly in recent months I've had babies presenting collapsed um, with cardiovascular shock and lactates as high as 14. But what's important is these babies respond very quickly to intubation and cardiovascular resuscitation and the lactate clears very quickly. So if your lactate isn't clearing or your shock isn't resolving, um, it should make you suspicious that this isn't related to bronchiolitis. Okay, so that's the background. Um, now I want to go on and cover how you would manage the baby um, in a systematic approach, um, starting with the airway. And if you're a regular listener to the podcast, this is probably a combination of the sepsis talk, dealing with that cardiovascularly unstable patient and getting them onto a ventilator, and the bronchiolitis talk, um, dealing with intubating the small baby for people who are not used to doing that. Um, so dealing with the airway and a collapse neonate is a combination of those two. You've got a small baby and you've got a baby who is likely to deteriorate and become cardiovascularly unstable on induction. So this is the approach to doing that. So, But firstly I want to deal with why you would intubate the baby um, and a number of reasons for doing that. Um, firstly you should electively intubate if you're needing to transfer the baby externally on more than 15 nanograms per kilo per minute of prostin. Um, and that's because at those doses, the baby is highly likely to have apneas. Um, and obviously you should have a secure way if you have a patient at risk of apneas for transfer. Um, another reason may be if you maybe don't need to transfer the baby externally, but you're planning a high dose um, prostin strategy. So greater than 20 nanograms per kilo per minute in an attempt to open a duct that hasn't responded to low-dose prostin. And in that situation, the baby's highly likely to have apneas, so you should get on ahead and intubate them prior to them developing them. Um, other reasons for intubating the collapsed neonate um, may be neuroprotection. For example, if you have a, a child with an intraventricular hemorrhage, either secondary to non-accidental injury or hemorrhagic disease of the newborn, or um, cerebral edema, secondary to meningitis or a metabolic problem. Um, you may want to balance the circulations in a baby with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Um, for example, if the baby has high saturations above 85% um, combined with signs of inadequate um, systemic circulation and pure perfusion elevated lactate. Um, other reasons for intubating the baby include um, respiratory failure, um, recurrent apneas, airway obstruction or loss of the protective airway reflexes, a coma scale less than 8, or um, responding to pain on the AFPU scale. Um, if you need to insert um, a central line, um, or if there's ongoing shock um, following um, 40 mls per kilo of resuscitation fluid. What is important to say, and I've covered this previously, in the shocked patient, um, cardiovascular resuscitation should take place prior to induction of anaesthesia. It's a really good way to make the patient arrest is to go on and give them an anaesthetic in that shock state before you've resuscitated them properly. So what you should do is support the patient while plans for intubation are made and while the patient is resuscitated from a cardiovascular point of view.
So the first thing to do is to provide the patient with some PEEP um, and that's best done with an RST piece or whatever device you're used to using. Um, you should give them um, an adequate amount of oxygen based on the patient's underlying pathophysiology. So for example, if you've got a baby with sepsis, a metabolic problem, or raised intracranial pressure, give them 100% oxygen while you're pre-oxygenating them. If you've got a baby with um, suspected duct-dependent congenital heart disease, the problem with giving that baby 100% oxygen is that oxygen is a really potent stimulant to closing the duct, and that administering 100% oxygen may cause a duct that's closing to fully close, or may be the cause of preventing you from reopening a duct with your prostaglandin infusion. It's also um, important in a baby that has hypoplastic left heart syndrome, for example, um, administration of 100% oxygen will cause pulmonary overcirculation and systemic collapse. So summing this up, if you have a baby you suspect congenital heart disease in, you should limit the oxygen to 30-40% at most. Okay, so you're providing PEEP and administering the right amount of oxygen to your patient. Um, and also you're resuscitating the cardiovascular system prior to administering induction agents with fluid. Um, if fluid isn't enough, um, you should start peripheral adrenaline uh, or interosseous adrenaline, um, normally at a dose of 0.1 mics per kilo per minute um, prior to the administration of the induction agents. And the easiest way to do that is to make up a milligram of adrenaline in 50 ml of 0.9% saline and infuse it at 0.3 times the weight in mils an hour, which will give you 0.1 mics per kilo per minute. For example, a three kilo baby, that's gonna be 0.9 mils an hour. What's really important with this is you need to make sure the adrenaline has reached the patient before you give your induction agent. Um, the normal dead space of the connectors that I use is about 0.3 mils and the cannula I use is about 0.1 mils, so I know I've got 0.4 mils of dead space. So for example, in my three kilo baby, if I start my um, adrenaline infusion um, at 0.9 mils an hour, um, I know it's going to take almost half an hour before it gets through the dead space and reaches my patient. So what I'll do is I'll bolus the 0.4 mils um, to get through the dead space, and then I'll watch the blood pressure to see that adrenaline has reached the patient before I induce anesthesia. And that's really, really important. That's a common mistake people make is they start the peripheral vasoactive drugs, but then induce anesthesia before the drugs have reached the patient through the dead space. If you have a cardiovascularly stable patient who's maybe responded to volume resuscitation, um, they may become unstable um, on induction of anesthesia. So you need to have something to bring the blood pressure up again. And that's where push-dose adrenaline comes in. Um, so you should make up adrenaline 1 in 100,000 um, by taking a mil of normal arrest dose adrenaline, which is 1 in 10,000, and adding it to 9 mils of 0.9% saline. So if there is any cardiovascular instability, you can administer some of this push-dose adrenaline. And a normal starting dose is about 0.1 mils per kilo. So for your three kilo baby, 0.3 mils of that is a reasonable starting dose. And that's about a tenth of you, what you would give in a cardiac arrest. So for the collapse needed in our case, 
you could almost guarantee if you don't resuscitate the cardiovascular system prior to induction of anesthesia, that they'll arrest. Even if you do all the things we mentioned here, um, there's still a high risk of cardiac arrest on intubation. Um, and it's important that you share this with your team during the team brief um, prior to intubation so that everybody's aware of this. Um, you should have resuscitation drugs prepared um, and in the absence of an arterial line, um, the non-invasive blood pressure should be cycling every minute. And I normally allocate a member of staff to keep a finger on one of the central pulses and, and let the team leader know if that disappears. And while I'm intubating the patient, I'm not the team leader because I'm concentrating on that job and somebody else should be ready to lead the arrest if and when it happens, or more importantly, to take a, interventions to prevent the patient from arresting when they start to deteriorate. Prior to inducing the patient, um, they should have a nasogastric tube inserted and their um, stomach contents aspirated. When you start to bag the patient, and you will need to bag them gently during the apnea period, um, their stomach will fill with air, which will impair your ventilation. So it's important that somebody continues to aspirate that nasogastric tube while you're bagging them with face mask ventilation. And even though you're bagging them, the patient is still likely to desaturate significantly, um, even with slick intubation. Okay, so I would also normally administer um, 10 mils per kilo of 0.9% saline just immediately prior to administering the induction agent, and that's given in addition to the resuscitation fluid that I've already given. Um, it's important to say that the sick neonate, even, even the well neonate, has a, a high risk of bradycardia, um, which is vaguely induced the moment you stick a laryngoscope down the back of their throat. Um, in the septic collapse neonate, the chances of them bradycardia on you is probably about 90%. So for me, preventing that is much better than treatment. It's one less thing to do. So I give all these babies prophylactic atropine um, and a dose of 20 mics per kilo. So um, what induction agent do you use? Um, for me, there's only one, it's ketamine. It's the safest and least likely to cause cardiovascular instability. Although due to the patient's uh, exhaustion of their own endogenous catecholamines, I still expect cardiovascular instability with its administration. Um, and I'm going to reduce the dose to 0.5 to 1 milligrams per kilogram, depending on how clapped out the baby is. What's really important to say here is you must not give the clapsed neonates propofol, thiopentone or midazolam as your induction agent because they're highly likely to arrest even if you do titrate the dose down to use a low dose. From a muscle relaxing point of view, um, I use rocuronium, a milligram per kilogram, which is an RSI dose, and I should be able to intubate the baby after about 45 seconds. Um, alternatively, if you want to, you can use sucks, um, although your risk of um, bradycardia is slightly higher with this, and if you are going to do this, you should definitely give prophylactic atropine. So now coming on to the practicalities of actually putting the tube in, um, it's important you keep the baby's head in a neutral position, rather than um, extending the neck um, as you would do with an older child or adult. Um, doing this in the, in the newborn will actually make the vocal cords more anterior and make it more difficult to get a good view. It's also really important to have suction to hand 
because in small baby secretions can easily block your view of the vocal cords. Um, it's generally better to use a straight blade than a curved blade in neonates um, and that's due to laxity of the glossoepiglottic ligament. Um, so with a curved blade you'll normally go into the vallecula behind the epiglottis and lift and it's the, the tension caused by this ligament that will indirectly lift the epiglottis out of the way. Um, with the laxity of this ligament in neonates um, it tends to lift the epiglottis partially but it still hangs down over the vocal cords and normally gives you a suboptimal view. When it comes on to blade sizing, um, I'm going to make it really simple. Use a Miller one blade in all neonates. Um, we routinely go out to get babies and are told the intubation is difficult because they're using too short a blade. Um, you can always intubate a baby with a slightly longer blade, but you'll struggle if you use too short a one. So just use a Miller one for all neonates and it just keeps it simple. Um, so the straight blade is designed to lift the epiglottis rather than going into the vallecula. Um, and I've linked to a number of videos um, in the show notes that show this technique. Um, if this isn't something that you're used to, you're used to intubating adults going into the vallecula, trying to lift the floppy epiglottis of a newborn can be quite difficult. Um, and if you are struggling with this, um, what I would recommend doing is then just go into the vallecula with the straight blade and combine this with a little bit posterior pressure on the larynx externally and 9 times out of 10 you'll have a view that you can intubate with. And there's a nice link to a video um, demonstrating exactly just this um, in the show notes. So the, the intubator starts off trying to lift the epiglottis, isn't able to do it, so it goes into the vallecula doesn't have an adequate view but applies a little bit of external laryngeal manipulation and gets a grade 2 view so we're able to pass the tube. Um, what size of tube should you use? Um, in most term neonates greater than 3 kilos I'd recommend using a size 3 cuff tube. If you don't have a cuff tube uh, a 3.5 um, on cuff tube is about right for any baby above um, 2.5 kilos. Um, less than two and a half kilos, um, use a size three um, on cuff tube. Um, my personal preference would be to use the, the cuff tube. Um, that avoids um, a reintubation if there's leak around the on cuff tube and you're not able to ventilate the baby adequately. Um, you should put the tube in till the depth marker at the vocal cords, and that's the best method for estimating how far the tube should go in. Um, but you can sort of estimate this in advance using the formula weight plus 6 for an oral tube or weight plus 7 for a nasal tube. So for example, for a 3 kilo baby, the tube's going to be 9 centimetres at the lips or 10 centimetres at the nose. And then it's important you obviously do a chest x-ray to confirm the tube position. Okay, so moving on to the breathing. Um, the ventilatory settings are very similar to what you would use um, in ventilating the neonate for any other condition. Um, so that's an IT ratio of 1 to 2, peep of 5 to 6 centimetres of water, um, eye time of 0.6 seconds, rate of 30 breaths per minute, and a peak pressure around about 20 centimetres of water, or a tidal volume of 6 mils per kilo, um, or a good starting point. And then you would adjust this based on the blood gases and chest rise. 
Um, like I mentioned in the um, bronchiolitis talk, when ventilating small babies, make sure your ventilator is appropriate and your circuit is appropriate for use in babies of this size in advance, as that's a common cause in refractory um, high CO2. Likewise, avoid the use of um, oversized filters, um, large capnography, or angle pieces, as these all increase the dead space in the circuit and cause resistant um, hypercapnia. Um, it's important that you continuously monitor um, pulse oximetry, and if you are concerned about congenital heart disease, um, you should monitor this pre and post ductally. So that's the, the right hand for your preductal saturations, and in any foot um, for postductal saturations, and obviously in any ventilated patient, you should be monitoring capnography. Um, we've already mentioned um, the amount of oxygen you deliver. Um, in these patients, but it's also important to mention what oxygen saturations you should be targeting. So if oxygen delivery is a problem, um, you should be targeting high oxygen saturations of 100%, for example in sepsis um, or in raised intracranial pressure. If you've got uh, duct-dependent congenital heart disease, um, normal oxygen saturations are about 75 to 85%. And you should limit your FiO2 to um, 30 to 40% as administration of additional oxygen is unlikely to help uh, if the hypoxia is due to a flu or mixing problem and may in fact make things worse. Um, for example, um, preventing the duct from reopening um, with the prostaglandin infusion. So if you do have um, hypoxia in this scenario, it should be discussed with the retrieval team and a paediatric cardiologist and it may be in fact you need to increase your prostaglandin dose to get the duct opened or consider a blue natural septostomy. Um, it's also important to not be reassured by high saturations in a single ventricular circulation um, as this indicates that the systemic and pulmonary circulations aren't balanced and that there's excessive pulmonary blood flow and expense of systemic blood flow. Um, and in this scenario, you may need to um, manipulate the pulmonary vascular resistance to help reduce its blood flow um, and there cause more blood to go to the systemic circulation. Um, in this scenario, um, it's important that you discuss the, how to do that with the retrieval team um, and that you monitor the lactate as a marker of the adequacy of systemic oxygen delivery. Okay, so moving on to the circulation, um, and the first thing I want to deal with is access. So I think this is one of the key messages of this talk. Um, getting peripheral venous access on a shot collapsed neonate, like uh, in our case, is going to be very difficult, even for skilled hands. Um, it's going to take a, at least a number of minutes, um, if it's quick and you don't want to delay the resuscitation even for that short amount of time. So for me personally, um, put an intraosseous line in and start resuscitating the baby. Then you can gain secondary access, which can be peripheral venous access, but start with the intraosseous line for a neonate presenting in that shape. Alternatively, if you are skilled in peripheral venous cannulation in neonates, um, allow yourself a maximum of two attempts or 90 seconds um, at peripheral venous access before moving on to interosseous access.
Um, when dealing with neonates, often your best chance of peripheral venous access is going to be the scalp veins. They're often well distended. Um, so if you're used to any certain uh, cannulas in bigger children or adults, that's going to be an area that you'll neglect. But have a look at the scalp. It's often your, your best chance for that initial cannula. Um, another useful vein is the external jugular vein. Um, once the patient can be positioned in a head down position with the neck extended, um, i.e. put a roll under the shoulders. It's also important to remember that umbilical venous access um, can be obtained uh, in neonates up to a week of age. Um, although as the baby gets older this becomes more and more difficult. Um, and you don't need any special umbilical lines to put in. You can put a standard um, 5 French triple lumen central line or if you're stuck a feeding tube into the umbilical vein um, using aseptic technique um, and that will provide you with quite a good source of central venous access. Um, particularly if the baby is more than a couple of days old this is going to take a little bit of time. Um, so if you need immediate access it's better to start with the interosseous access and move on to this as your secondary form of access. Um, if you do need a central line, um, generally the femoral site is preferred in children over um, the internal jugular or subclavian veins um, and use of ultrasound is highly recommended. It is important to mention that um, vasoactive drugs um, can be given via peripheral or interosseous line um, while central access has been attempted. So you don't need to delay the administration of these drugs. Go ahead and start them um, via the peripheral line like we discussed um, in stabilising the patient pre-intubation with that um, peripheral strength adrenaline. If you're not used to inserting central lines in small babies, it's important that you discuss this with the retrieval team. Do I really need to attempt a central line before the retrieval team arrives or am I okay just to leave the intraosseous or peripheral adrenaline running in a stable baby with otherwise adequate vascular access. I think in that scenario it's much better to leave the veins for the experienced hands of the retrieval team rather than wrecking a couple of the central veins and making the retrieval team's job a bit more difficult. Um, if you know the cardiac diagnosis, for example, you've had somebody there who can perform an echocardiogram, um, it gives you a bit of guidance about where you should and shouldn't attempt central venous access. So if you've got a baby who at some stage is going to need a Fontan procedure, for example, hypoplastic left heart syndrome, um, you should avoid the neck veins because you damaging them or causing a clot in the SVC is going to affect the ability to perform that repair. If you've got a baby who may need a blue atrial septostomy performed, for example, transposition of the great arteries, avoid the femoral veins, because if you damage the femoral veins, you can make performing that septostomy impossible. Um, the collapsed neonate should have arterial access um, inserted, and the ideal place for doing this is one of the peripheral arteries. They're associated with less risk of complications than the central vessels. So ideally um, a radial or posterior tibial artery. Um, and the right size of cannula for doing this is a 24 gauge cannula. Using a bigger cannula in small babies just increases the risk of limb ischemia and also makes it more difficult for you to insert it. Um, if you can't get a peripheral arterial line, you can consider a central arterial line. Um, and in this scenario, 
the femoral artery um, should be considered over the brachial artery. As although they're both end arteries, the femoral artery is bigger, so it's going to allow more blood flow around the cannula and cause less risk of limb ischemia. Um, ultrasound is very useful for arterial lines as well as central venous lines um, in the CLAPS baby. And like in our case, the peripheral pulses were very hard to feel. But with ultrasound, the arteries are going to be visible. So allowing you to insert the line even though you can't feel the pulse. Um, and if you are using um, ultrasound for um, arterial access, um, I would strongly encourage you to use a transection technique rather than trying to cannula it directly. It's very hard to do and it's much easier just to transfix the artery and catch it on the way back out. So looking at your blood pressure targets in a term neonate, um, they're 60, 40, 30. So that's a systolic blood pressure of 60, mean blood pressure of 40, and diastolic blood pressure of 30 millimetres of mercury. Um, um, while we're all very good at targeting mean blood pressures or systolic blood pressures, it's important you look at the diastolic blood pressure as well to give you an idea of the peripheral vascular resistance and also because the diastolic blood pressure is important for your coronary perfusion pressure. If you've got a preterm neonate, um, you can generally estimate the mean arterial pressure, what it should be based on the gestational age of the baby. So for example, a 36-weeker should have a mean blood pressure of 36 millimetres of mercury. Likewise, a 32-weeker should have a mean blood pressure of 32 millimetres of mercury. Um, for signs of cardiovascular shock, for example, tachycardia, hypotension, prolonged central capillary refill time, elevated lactate or poor pulse volume, um, you should administer fluid pulses of 0.9% saline and 10 ml per kilo aliquots. And titrate um, vasoactive drugs, um, as I discuss in the sepsis podcast. So you should listen to that for details and helping you decide when you should give fluid and when you should use vasoactive drugs. Um, but in general, if you're having to give more than 40 mils per kilo of fluid, you should be adding in some vasoactive drugs. And like I said, my personal preference is to start with adrenaline, a dose of 0.1 mics per kilo per minute. Um, and you can make that up um, in a peripheral strength and run that either through a peripheral venous cannula or intraosseous line um, while central access is being obtained. And again, have a look at the sepsis chapter or listen to the sepsis podcast um, for further advice on titrating fluid and vasoactive drugs. Important to mention as well, for fluid and ionotrope resistant shock, you should give intravenous hydrocortisone, 2.5 milligrams per kilogram every six hours. But again, I cover that in the sepsis talk. So moving on to um, prostaglandin. Um, so in any baby you suspect um, that the cause of your um, collapse state is due to duct-dependent congenital heart disease, you should be starting dinoprostin, um, which is prostaglandin E2 in an attempt to open the duct. And babies that may make you suspicious of that is hypoxia refractory to oxygen, where there's hypoxia without significant respiratory distress or lung pathology and chest x-ray, a pathological murmur, absent femoral pulses, um, cardiomegaly or um, pulmoedema on chest x-ray, or a lactic acidosis or shock state that fails to respond to intubation and ventilation and cardiovascular support. 
So I've mentioned the access was one of the most important things I was going to mention, you know, starting with uh, intraosseous access rather than spending 10 15 minutes trying to get peripheral access and during that time the baby's not getting resuscitated. The dose that you start the prostaglandin on is also one of the important learning points um, and one of the things I see done wrong time and time again. So the dose of prostin that you use depends on what you're trying to do with it. So if you're trying to maintain the patency of a widely open duct, for example, a baby is born with an antenatal um, diagnosed congenital heart disease, which is going to be duct dependent in delivery suite, and you bring the baby up to the neonatal unit and start them on prostin, a starting dose will be five nanograms per kilo per minute. But you've got a widely patent duct and you're just trying to keep it open. However, in this scenario, you've got a collapsed neonate who's really, really sick. And the reason they're sick is their duct has closed and you're trying to reopen the duct rather than trying to maintain patency of a widely open duct. So for this situation, you need to start at a much higher dose of prostin. And in this scenario, I was starting a dose of 20 nanograms per kilo per minute. And if that's not working, it should be increased rapidly up to 50 nanograms per kilo per minute. And if this is ineffective, go up to 100 nanograms per kilo per minute. So obviously these high doses, the side effects are going to be much more common. So you're going to have apnea and hypotension due to vasodilatation. But in the collapse neonate scenario, you're going to be intubating the baby anyway, and you're going to be supporting them with vasoactive drugs. So if it's due to prostate immediate vasodilatation alone, noradrenaline would be the ideal drug to counteract this. If there is somebody available locally who can perform an echocardiogram, um, getting the diagnosis will also be helpful. So that should be done. Going to move on now to the disability. Um, so for keeping these babies asleep, um, morphine alone is normally adequate um, at a starting dose of 20 mics per kilo per hour um, and the normal neonatal range being 10 to 30 mics per kilo per hour. Um, commonly in paediatric practice, we'll use um, morphine combined with midazolam, but I generally try to avoid this on babies certainly less than three months of age, um, as there's a high risk of uh, withdrawal in this age group, and often the, the addition of midazolam is unnecessary as well. Um, from the point of view of muscle relaxant, it's probably better to give um, boluses of uh, muscle relaxant rather than a continuous effusion as this allows you to assess the neurology um, in between doses um, in a baby who's at high risk of having seizures. And obviously, if you keep the baby paralysed, you're not going to be able to detect these clinically. Um, if the baby does seize, um, the best treatment is uh, phenobarbitone, 20 milligrams per kilogram, given over 20 minutes. And as we've already mentioned in the Status Epilepticus podcast, um, you should avoid phenytoin and cardiovascularly unstable patients. So the collapse neonate fits nicely into that category. So phenobarbitone is your, your ideal drug to use. Um, and if the baby does seize, you should be looking at why are they seizing? Um, is there a metabolic problem? Is there electrolyte or glucose problems? Or is there intracranial pathology? While one of those um, intracranial pathologies could be meningitis, um, a lumbar puncture is contraindicated at this stage and you must not perform a lumbar puncture in the collapsed neonate. 
Um, it's important you regularly monitor the blood sugars. Um, if the baby is hypoglycemic at any stage, it could be related to a metabolic problem. So during that hypoglycemic period is the ideal time to perform a hypoglycemia screen. Um, and we cover that in the labs and electrolytes section. So um, provided it doesn't result in a significant delay, um, you should take some blood off for that screen and uh, administer two mils per kilo of 10% dextrose um, as a bolus to try and bring the blood sugar back to normal. Um, so moving on to sepsis, as we've already mentioned, um, early appropriate antibiotics are really important um, and these should be given within an hour of presentation to all neonates presenting in the collapsed state, regardless of whether you think it's sepsis or not. All collapsed neonates should be treated with antibiotics while culture results come back. And as we've mentioned, it being in a collapsed state is a contraindication to performing a lumbar puncture. So please don't do this and make the child worse. Um, if you've got community-acquired sepsis, um, cefotaxime and amoxicillin, um, both in doses of 50 milligrams per kilogram, are appropriate. Um, Hospital-acquired sepsis, meropenem, 40 milligrams per kilogram, plus or minus the addition of vancomycin, 15 milligrams per kilogram, if the patient's known to be colonised with MRSA or has an indwelling central line or any other plastic that could be infected. Um, probably all these babies should have uh, intravenously cyclovirulent in a dose of 20 milligrams per kilogram to cover congenital herpes simplex infection. Um, under this section as well, I'm going to cover temperature. Um, neonates have a high uh, surface area to volume ratio and if exposed, will get cold very, very quickly. Um, the uh, cold neonate will get sicker, so it's important that you try and limit this. So um, if this baby should ideally be resuscitated on a resuscitator, if it's available with an overhead heater, um, if not, you should limit their um, exposure by keeping them covered as much as possible, putting a hat on. Um, you can put a transformer onto the patient or um, once the patient stopped being working with, making sure they're well covered with blankets. So uh, moving on to the renal system. So uh, a neonate's fluid requirements generally increase from about 60 mils per kilo per day on day one of life to 150 mils per kilo per day at the end of the first week of life. Um, and any critically ill patient um, should have fluids restricted as they're at risk of SIADH and once you intubate them, you're given humidified gases so their insensible losses go down. So normally, um, we'd restrict um, neonates after the first week of life to around about 100 mils per kilo per day as a fluid allowance. So intravenous fluids should be prescribed at 100 mils per kilo per day. Um, it's important to use isotonic fluids due to the risk of SIDH. So I would normally use normal saline um, combined with 10% dextrose plus or minus added potassium, depending on what the potassium was on the blood gas. Um, and a baby who's presenting this sick should have their bladders catheterized and urinary output monitored, aiming for a greater than one mil per kilo per hour. Moving on to the gastrointestinal system, um, it's important the baby's kept nil by mouth and the nasogastric tube is aspirated and then left on free drainage to remove any air that may have been um, swallowed during the bagging period. 
Um, keeping the baby nil by mouth is important um, if you're worried about a metabolic problem. Um, it would be unusual to start feeds prior to them being transferred, but it's particularly important that you don't in this scenario until that metabolic problem has been ruled out as um, removing the feeds and putting on a simple sugar such as 10% dextrose is often part of the treatment. So going on to the labs and electrolytes that you should send, um, I think for all CLAPS neonates, um, a basic screen that I would do would be a full blood picture, a clotting, um, group and save, urine electrolytes, calcium, magnesium, phosphate, liver function, glucose, CRP, ammonia, blood gas, lactate, blood culture, um, and whole blood um, for meningococcal and HSV PCR. If the baby's hypoglycemic at any stage, there you should send a hypoglycemia screen. And if you're worried about metabolic problems, there's a metabolic screen. Um, and I cover both those screens in the show notes to this podcast, so I'm not going to mention them here. So moving on to the drugs that you'll use in these patients, I'm trying to cover them in a little bit more detail. So the first drug I want to cover is the dinoprostin, the prostaglandin E2. So in this scenario, you're using it to reopen the ductus arteriosus in suspected duct-dependent congenital heart disease. So the common side effects with this are apnea, pyrexia, flushing, vomiting and hypotension. I've already mentioned some of these. Um, and if you're using sort of higher doses, the risks of the side effects will obviously increase. So the dosing range of this drug varies between 5 and 100 nanograms per kilo per minute and obviously the higher doses the side effects are going to increase. From a point of view of how, how do you make this drug up is something you're not familiar with doing. Um, so I would generally make this up in a 500ml bag of 5% dextrose or 0.9% saline um, because the volume of dinoprostin that you, you need to use if you try to make it up in a 50ml syringe is very small. So what I would do is take that 500ml bag of 5% dextrose or 0.9% saline and take 0.5ml out of the bag and discard it. Then if you add to that bag 0.5ml of dinoprostin, which is a milligram per mil. So you'll have made up um, 500 micrograms in 500ml of a solution. And then what I would do is take 50ml of that solution and put it in a syringe and run that via syringe pump at 1.2 times the weight in kilograms, mils an hour. And that's going to be equivalent to 20 nanograms per kilo per minute. If you're worried about um, undiagnosed hyperammonemia, um, obviously you should be speaking to a paediatric metabolic consultant um, to get advice about the drugs you need to get to remove that. Um, the, the main drugs you tend to use are sodium benzoate um, and sodium phenylbutyrate um, in an initial loading dose of 250 milligrams per kilogram over 90 minutes, followed up by a further 250 milligrams per kilogram um, over the next 24 hours. And depending on their suspicions, they'll sometimes want you to add in some arginine and carnitine um, to the treatment as well. Um, so what you do and whether you give loading doses or not um, will be under the metabolic team's advice, so it's important you have them involved. 
um, and there's good guidance on the British Inherited Metabolic Diseases Group um, guideline um, and they also have a calculator on how you make up these infusions which I've linked to in the show notes. Okay, so now I want to go back to the case we discussed at the start and let you know how that was managed. So we had the three-week-old neonate who presented with a short history of becoming unwell and presented in a collapsed state, grey, cyanosed, with poor perfusion and unrecordable blood pressure. So the baby was taken through to the resuscitation area and the airway was supported with mask and pipe. Because intravenous access looked like it was going to be difficult, an intraosseous line was used first line and inserted into the right tibia. Um, and through this, um, two 20 mil per kilo boluses of 0.9% saline were administered. As the boluses were being pushed in, uh, a second port of access was sighted in the scalp, allowing the screen of bloods to be taken off and intravenous antibiotics to be given. There was no improvement to the perfusion um, with the 40 mils per kilo of fluid resuscitation. So on discussion with the retrieval team, a further 20 mils per kilo of fluid was administered. Entryosis adrenaline was started at 0.1 mics per kilo per minute. And once the team were happy that the adrenaline had reached the patient, a modified RSI was performed using atropine, ketamine and rocuronium. Um, the baby was also started on prostaglandin infusion at 20 nanograms per kilo per minute as there was concerns about congenital cyanotic heart disease. Following intubation and ventilation, a chest x-ray was performed um, which showed the endotracheal tube to be in a good position. But the heart looked abnormal. It was large and had the appearance of an egg on its side um, and the lung fields were plethoric in keeping with pulmonary edema. So this raised the suspicion of transposition of the great arteries. Um, the oxygen saturations were unresponsive to increased amounts of oxygen. Um, so the FiO2 was reduced to 0.3. And as the um, dinoprostin, which had been started at 20 nanograms per kilo per minute, hadn't made an improvement, this was increased up to 50 nanograms per kilo per minute. Um, with advice of the paediatric retrieval team and also the consultant paediatric cardiologist. The dose of adrenaline was increased and some noradrenaline was also added in to support the blood pressure, which was now recordable but low. The paediatric retrieval team arrived to find that the 100 nanograms per kilo per minute of prosin hadn't made any difference um, and that this was a baby who needed an urgent um, atrial septostomy performed. So the baby was transferred urgently with um, interosseous vasoactive drugs running. So time wasn't wasted trying to sight an arterial or central line, as this was now a time critical transfer. On arrival on PICU, an echocardiogram confirmed the diagnosis of transposition of the great arteries and uh, an immediate atrial septostomy was performed with sudden improvement in the saturations from 35% to 85%. Over the next few hours, the lactate and perfusion uh, continued to improve and the baby had an arterial switch operation performed later in the week and made a good recovery 
without any neurological sequelae. So I hope you found that useful. Um, I would encourage you to have a look at the show notes there on the paediatricemergencies.com website and drop me a comment there. Um, let me know what you thought of this podcast. As well, if you do get the time, please leave a review on iTunes and check out the new website. It's kidsresource.com and we'd love you to get involved there. Thanks for listening.